On the podcast, we often talk about the shortage of affordable housing nationally and in different markets. Today, we'd like to spend some time on a really important part of the market that does not get enough attention, housing in American Indian areas. Yeah, and uh, HUD put out a report a few years ago looking at housing in these areas and found that a total of 68,000 new units need to be constructed to eliminate overcrowding and replace inadequate units. This is a very challenging gap to close, right? It's informed by a long, complex history, and there are a lot of really nuanced uh, programs in place today that need to be pulled together as part of solving this uh, solving this gap. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of great work and that's been done to develop much-needed affordable housing. Um, and today on the show, we're going to get a better understanding of this history, the needs today, and the work that needs to be done to address it. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today, we're going to talk about a really important and challenging affordable housing gap to close, the gap in American Indian areas. Now, there's a complex history in this challenge that goes beyond housing, but it also informs how the housing market works. We're going to spend some time trying to understand this history of housing in American Indian areas and, and what's being done to close that gap. We're fortunate to be joined by three people who have a great deal of experience in this. Uh, Elizabeth Glynn, the CEO of Travoy, Alexandria Mernan, the Director of Affordable Housing at Travoy, and John Galfioni, Director and Investment Manager at RBC. So Travoy is a certified B Corporation focused exclusively on promoting housing and economic development for American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian communities. And RBC, among other things, is, is one of the leading LIHTC syndicators expert in investing in American Indian areas. So Elizabeth, Alexandria, and John, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So Elizabeth, can we start with you and, and start with a brief history of housing on tribal lands? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, there is a severe lack of affordable housing on tribal land across the country. This shortage is the legacy of more than 150 years of U.S. governmental policy that forced the removal of Indian peoples from their homelands and created the reservation system, which has created many barriers to progress that still exist today. Throughout the 19th century, the U.S. government worked to isolate and concentrate Native peoples far from natural resources and the developing economies in lands they were forced to leave. By the 1950s, the U.S. government attempted to end that special relationship between tribal governments and the U.S. government that had been developed during the treaty era to one of attempted termination of tribal governments. By the 1960s, with growing awareness that life was exceedingly difficult on reservations, the government put into place a variety of programs to build housing. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the low rent and mutual help housing programs were some of the most prolific. And since 1962, the Office of Native American Programs at HUD has provided funding to Indian housing authorities in American Indian and Alaska Native communities before the passage of the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act of 1996, what we refer to as NAHASDA. This Funding, low rent and mutual help constituted the majority of all federal resources for housing in tribal communities. So in 1996, NAHASDA has offered tribal governments far more options to expand their housing programs and create their own community-based home ownership and other resources that they determine. 
Although Naha's defunding levels are still too low for tribes to fully address their housing shortages, they now have resources available to allocate toward their own priorities and community plans. Thank you so much for that, Elizabeth. And, and uh, that was a great brief summary of uh, long and complex history. We paused sort of at Nahasta and, and that concept. And certainly that alone doesn't seem like uh, enough to uh, to solve some of this gap. And I know in, in recent years, tax credit housing has been more part of the solution. How has that come about? Absolutely. So right before Nahasda was enacted in 1995, my father was working as a community affairs officer at the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis and saw firsthand the great demand for affordable housing on reservations when he would travel um, across his district and meet with tribal leaders. And he, like them, was frustrated by the lack of funding and wondered why the low-income housing tax credit program was not being used to help fill that substantial gap. So after studying the first LIHTC attempt on tribal land and its successes and challenges, he started Travoy to assist tribes in accessing the low-income housing tax credit program more effectively. And it was slow going for many years as he navigated the sometimes complicated relationship between state, federal, and tribal governments. And he worked to encourage investment using novel approaches to meet the requirements of low-income housing tax credit investors. Over the last 26 years, our tribal clients have built nearly 6,000 homes in 21 states for a total cost of over $1.1 billion. And while there have been and continue to be many challenges to affordable housing development on tribal land, we are grateful for the support of many states and investors who've worked in partnership with tribal leaders to create beautiful and safe homes for thousands of families in every region of the country. I'm sure that you've jumped from really extreme challenges, I think, over the long history to the successes that have that have come about in the last 26 years. I'm sure it's a it's a ton of work in between. Is there a good starting place for, for kind of connecting us to the challenges and what it took to get to that level? Sure, absolutely. So some of those initial challenges were a misunderstanding of tribal sovereignty, which previously had been a real barrier to investment in the traditional sense on tribal lands. So a lot of the work that Travoy did in the early days was working with attorneys and tribal leaders and state allocation agency personnel to make sure that everyone understood that this is not a barrier. We just have to think about it in a slightly different way than everybody had thought about it before. And when legal documents were created to codify how everybody would work and the situation could be worked out, then it went quickly after that as um, it became clear that states wanted to encourage affordable housing development on tribal land and saw the great need. I think everyone saw how important it is to build affordable housing on tribal lands and just wanted to ensure that it would fit with the low-income housing tax credit program. That, that is a fundamental issue that is um, definitely different than the broader housing market and one that, like you say, it's it's great that you could get to an end with a new perspective. I'm sure that in the in the broader financing market, there's a lot of learning to be done as well. And so, John, as, as RBC gets involved, uh, what, are, what are some of the challenges and some of the successes for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think as Elizabeth mentioned, there was a, an education campaign that had to take place both internally and, and externally and brought in various parties. And I think it was, 
you know, we had RBC had been investing in and been a syndicator of low-income housing tax credits since the 90s. Um, and we had partnered with a number of different public and private developers just around the country on various projects. And around 2011, we we made contact with Travoy to better understand their role in, in create affordable housing on on tribal lands. And, and I think at the same time, they were looking f- to expand the 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 base of investors in this area. So so we really spent a lot of time with Travoy and with some of the tribal housing authorities that were actively developing projects in these markets and, and bringing in attorneys to better understand the markets. And I think we, we closed our first transaction uh, back in 2012 and have done 27 projects together since. The first one or two, I, I think, certainly took took a while to get up to speed, be it issues of sovereign immunity, uh, issues of land ownership and title issues. But I think once you work through those initial questions, everything, you know, future projects go go a lot smoother. I think, you know, you all were uh, some of the earlier, it sounds like some of the earlier investors. How much investment do you see or how, how many players do you see in this market on the investment side? There's a wide variety of investors and demand on the equity side. The majority of projects we invest in go into what's called a multi-investor fund, where on average, 10 to 15 projects get pulled into a fund that's split between 10 or so end investors. These investors could be financial or insurance institutions or just corporations with tax liability. Uh, We typically like to include one or two tribal projects in each of these funds. They've performed well, and there's certainly demand for them. Uh, on the other side, there are proprietary investment funds where a single investor will provide the equity for an individual project. And that's the space in which Freddie Mac's played an important role in the tribal housing market, having invested thus far in three different tribal projects uh, with RBC in Arizona and California. Travoy has helped uh, create uh, around 6,000 units. And RBC, John, you guys have, have had uh, a lot of success with investments. How much do you see happening in a, in a given year, you know, as we think of that gap of 68,000? So we typically put in about 15 low-income housing tax credit applications across 10 states um, in any given year. And of those, we probably see awards on most of them and the production of around 150 homes a year, typically, I would say. We have a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, but also some consistency, it, seem, it seems, in, in, in what you're seeing each year. And, and that, that's good to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, over the years, developed great relationships with several states who have actually set aside funding specifically for tribal developers because they see the great need and demand for affordable housing. So that's great. That really spurs a lot more momentum to building these units and helping families into homes. So there's there's real progress. And I think you're right. Every year we see a little bit more and we get a little bit closer to that goal. And while Travoy does a lot of the work in Indian country that gets done every year. We're not the only one. So there are other projects happening without us, but we um, do do the majority of the projects and we hope that we can continue to grow and expand to better meet that demand. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the, the types of housing that, that gets built. I understand that's maybe a little bit different from what one might think of for you know, tax credit properties around the country. 
First, I want to mention that um, your listeners may know this, but there are 574 federally recognized Indian tribes in the United States, and each has their own tribal communities with specific needs and demands, um, geographic considerations, and so on. With that being said, we do see certain trends in the types of developments needed by tribes that are compatible with the LIHTC program. Most of the developments we do are single-family units with some single uh, townhome-style development. They're typically very rural because that's where tribal land is located for a variety of historic reasons that Elizabeth mentioned. And they are typically larger units with three, four, or even five bedrooms to accommodate a desire to live in multi-generational households. And so those are the traditional developments. That is kind of changing. We're seeing some diversification over the past few years with uh, interest in apartment buildings, different styles of developments. But generally speaking, um, we see 30 to 40 unit developments, single family homes in very rural areas. All those things make sense in terms of uh, single family housing and larger units. Are there other considerations as it relates to developing in what often are rural areas, as you say, or, or other factors? Yeah, there are some challenges as it relates to the rural locations. Construction costs are definitely higher in the rural markets that tribes are in. Over the past year, uh, we've seen significant increases in material and labor costs, and I'm sure you know most developers across the country have seen the same thing. But you could multiply that by an X factor for you know tribal developments that are a hundred miles from the closest metropolitan area. That is a significant challenge, obviously from a financing perspective, but also when it comes to competing for tax credits. Almost every state has some sort of cost containment or credit efficiency category that make it hard for tribal developers to compete and receive those points because just by the nature of their very location and the types of developments that they desire are not able to get their cost per unit down to a level that could compete against you know, a 100-unit apartment building in downtown Tucson. So is that where the set-asides come in as especially important? Definitely. So all of our projects thus far have been 9% LIHTC projects. So the tribal developers that we work with have to compete against other for-profit or non-profit developers. Sometimes they've been able to compete in rural set-asides in some states or preservation set-asides. But in seven states right now, there is some version of a tribal set-aside where tribes compete against other tribes for a predetermined amount of credits. In some states, that means one tribal project can be funded annually. Um, In Arizona, it's typically two. In California, it's been two in some years. But the tribal set-asides are really important because of those fundamental differences between tribal and non-tribal developments. Beyond the cost containment and credit efficiency categories, uh, tribal projects almost can never score any sort of amenities points or transit or light rail points or walk score points. And so that can be challenging. So that's why it's important to allow tribes to you know, compete against other similar tribal projects in order to um, have access to the low-income housing tax credit program. So I'm curious, what, what states have set-asides today? And then um, related to that, what states where you see uh, maybe a significant 
need for housing and a, and a significant uh, population that uh, do not have set-asides. So um, Arizona has a tribal set-aside. I think they were probably the first. Um, it's been in existence for 15 or 20 years. New Mexico has a variation of a tribal set-aside. California has a Native American apportionment within their rural set-aside. Um, North Dakota, South Dakota, Oregon has a new tribal set-aside, and then Michigan has a new tribal set-aside. Pretty much every other state where tribes are located <laughs> um, that does not have a tribal set-aside, um, that's where there's the challenge. Some states like Washington and Minnesota have scoring categories within their, their, within their QAP that uh, try to offset tribal developer challenges. It can work in some cases, but in many cases, it's still a challenge. Really, what we've seen time and time again is that states that commit to a tribal set aside are, you know, telling tribal developers, we hear you, we know the changes, we can't make the changes for all developers, but we know that you desperately need additional housing. So we're going to, you know, put this in our QAP and and give you a chance at competing for these credits. And to emphasize what Alexandria is talking about here, one thing to note is that while it's great that there are these tribal set-asides. And of course, the states that have put those resources in tribal set-asides are really doing an excellent job of pushing resources toward those needy areas of the state, many of which tribes occupy. There is a large percentage of the tribal population across the United States that lives in states that do not have tribal set-asides. And it's very difficult to win awards when there aren't set-asides. So for example, some of the states with the highest share of Native American people is Alaska and um, Oklahoma. And it's we have not been able to win a project in Oklahoma in, gosh, I don't know how many years it's been now, probably almost a decade, um, because it's it's difficult to compete in a you know a very competitive market. The fact that set-asides really work is definitely something that I, I would hope that those other states would look at. And uh, maybe back to John a little bit. As you and investors look at deals, are there considerations that they give to set-asides or are there other factors that are looked at that look at especially attractive on the financing side? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of, as Alexandra and Elizabeth are, are mentioning, I mean, a lot of the projects that we see are coming from states that get allocations because there is a, a special set aside. Um, otherwise, they, they may just never get an award of credits and not hit our desk. And we usually, we're usually looking at projects at two different points. Uh, we'll do a high level review often when um, Troy will reach out if they are starting to put together an application and, and pull the pieces together and just to give a give an overall take on pricing and structure and just see what what might work and what could tweak uh, to, to make it a little a little better. And then once the project is is awarded credits, that's when we really will dig into into our underwriting and our analysis and what we're looking for. I mean, it's not dissimilar from from other projects. There there are some nuances, but I mean, we always start with with a review of the sponsor I and mean, who the who the tribal housing authority or the in some cases the tribe itself is. Um, and what we're looking for is a couple of things. One is is their experience. Uh, they don't need to be experts in in tax credit financing, but just experience in in developing and and operating um, housing in the area. Um, we look to to make sure that they 
they have uh, an adequate balance sheet for the project. I mean, in most cases, projects start and finish without without too many major hiccups. But you know, there are there are things that come up during construction and and delays and cost overruns that we want to make sure there's enough cushion to to deal with those. And then just overall management um, turnover at the, at the the senior management level, kind of no issues with internal controls, compliance with state and federal federal government programs. We're looking high level at those items when we're, when we're looking um, at sponsor review. Uh, after that, we're usually looking at the market, uh, make sure there's enough demand in the market for what's being proposed. Usually the answer is yes, um, just because the, the sponsor in these cases has a, has a greater sense of, of market and market need than, than anyone else out there. Uh, including some market analysts who are coming in and, and trying to anal- analyze what's what's going on at the market level. Um, and then we're looking at, at basic underwriting like in any project. Are rents achievable? Are the costs to operate the project achievable? Are the construction and, and lease-up schedules realistic that allow tax credits to, to flow to to the limited partner? So those are those are probably the main areas that we start, I would say. Going back to some of what we talked about at the beginning, uh, tax credits are an important part of the the financing, uh, but we talked about NAHASDA before. How, how does that factor in? NAHASDA is a far better way for tribes to determine their own needs and allocate resources based on what their community determines are their housing needs and where best to put those resources. So it's a it's a critical resource for American Indian tribes and communities and has worked really well since it was initially enacted in 1996 and has been reauthorized several times in the past and is currently awaiting reauthorization, which um, is something that's proven to be really effective and we hope occurs again in the future. So uh, the the funding from Nahasta, you know, so John, you talked about uh, just Looking at the ability of the uh, the housing authority to, um, you know, cover any issues that might come up along the way, Do, does Nahasta help support that? Uh, it does. I mean, it depends a little bit on on the sponsor, but a lot of times the Nahasda and the IHBG funds that that come from Nahasda is what is what is funding the sponsor's contribution, usually in the form of a loan to the project or funding the ongoing subsidy. And so we're we're really relying on those those funds being allocated um, on an annual basis just to make sure the projects can run smoothly. So it's a, it's a very important part of our analysis and making the projects work. And, and IHBG, you said uh, Indian Housing Block Grants? That, that's right. So now that we sort of have some understanding of the, the financing aspect of this, uh, I think it would be great to get an understanding of some of the, uh, some of the recent uh, transactions that that you've done some of the recent communities you've supported and, and uh, projects you've worked on? So a recent project that we worked with RBC on was Yurok Homes 3. It is located in Arcata, California, and it received a 2020 allocation of 9% LITEX from the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee. It's actually located on fee land owned by the Yurok Indian Housing Authority, and these units, though they're off Yurok Trust Land, are within the tribe service area and will serve tribal members that are living in Arcata. Um, there's a large Indian Health Service clinic in Arcata that employs and serves many tribal members. That was one of the reasons why Yurok Indian Housing Authority wanted to develop more units in that community. The project includes 36 units. And what I think is really neat about this development is it 
it's a bit different from our traditional single family development in that it provides a mix of different unit types. It includes eight what appear to be single family homes with a first floor one bedroom additional dwelling unit that can be entered into from the side of the building. So they're technically duplexes, but um, they have a three bedroom unit and then a a small one bedroom unit that would be perfect for an elder that um, wants to be in close proximity to the IHS clinic. Additionally, the project includes four two-story buildings that are essentially five plexes, but they appear visually to be just kind of traditional townhomes, but they're actually a mix of townhomes and stacked apartments. So you really get four different kind of unit types in this development, which serves a diverse population on Yurok Indian Housing Authority's waiting list. In total, the project is $18.4 million dollars with investor equity covering $12.8 million. And the remainder of the funds are coming from a construction loan funded by the Housing Authority, and then a permanent loan funded by a program through the California Department of Housing and Community Development. So it's a really great development. Um, I encourage people to check out Travoy's website. We have some pictures of the units. Additionally, um, the city as part of the development, put in a large pedestrian bridge that connects the project to a nearby park. So it's really a showstopper. Oh, that's fantastic. And you said this was a Yurok 3, right? So there, there are a couple, is this the third phase of an existing project? Um, it is uh, their third LIHTC project. The other two were in different communities, I believe both on their reservation. So this is the first one off the reservation on fee land within their tribal service area. Um, they're really trying to serve different different communities um, with this valuable resource. You had mentioned that uh, RBC was involved in this transaction. So John, is this one one that uh, was, was an easy one for you guys? Or as you looked at it, uh, some challenges? Or can you tell us a little bit about your perspective? Yeah, they're never as easy as you as you think or hope they will be, even if on paper they look it. Um, but no, this is a very attractive project to us. I mean, you know, going back to what I mentioned, what we look at to start with is is sponsorship. We've worked with the York Indian Housing Authority before and and they had performed very well on a prior project in Hoopla, California. So we were really excited to partner with with them a, a second time. You know, it was, it was a tough site to develop. I think if I remember correctly, the land was previously owned by a private developer who who was trying to develop market housing on it and they just couldn't get the numbers and the financing to make the project work. And so when the Housing Authority and, and Travoy came in and, and and purchased the land and put put all the financing in place, including the, the HCD financing to, to fund all the infrastructure work and bring utilities to the site and, and road work to the site, um, they really put together a nice project. Uh, it, you know, attractive design, attractive amenities, as, as Alexandria mentioned, there was a strong market in Arcata and it, it a strong need for affordable housing, especially the different AMI uh, or area median income levels that were being served. There were some units at 30%, some at 40%, some at 50%. And so there were no no questions on whether or not there was market need at all. And so from that aspect, and from many aspects, it was, a, it was an easy project uh, to move forward with. A lot of what Travoy does is help bridge the gap between communities that we work with. And so our a lot of our work is helping investors and states see the expertise that tribes already have in affordable housing. It might not always be 
specifically to the low-income housing tax credit program if they're new to that program. But tribes have been managing their own community resources for hundreds of years. And of course, in the last decades, they've been doing affordable housing with whatever resources they've been able to cobble together before the LIHTC program. So they have significant experience building and managing rental properties. It's just not always in the local low-income housing tax credit sphere. So what we do is help um, get that recognition that tribes deserve for all the hard work that they've done over decades. It's great to see all that that coming together on, on projects such as such as this one. Let's take a look ahead. We've talked about some good successes and, and how things work. What do you see emerging in the market? Any new trends and any new developments that, that really need to be paid attention to in, in the years to come? I think there's a growing recognition that tribes are an economic force in the country. Um, For example, the National Congress of American Indians has compiled information that shows that the 38 tribal nations in Oklahoma, for example, have a $10.8 billion impact on the state every year, supporting an estimated 87,000 jobs or 5% of all the jobs in the state. And so I think there's growing recognition that Supporting affordable housing in American Indian communities really supports the growth and prosperity of the country, and that in order to be successful, we all need to be creating better affordable housing resources for those most in need throughout our communities. And oftentimes, the gap between what is there and what needs to be there exists on American Indian land. And so I think going forward, we hope that there's continued recognition that set-asides are really helpful. And in the absence of set-asides, as Alexandria mentioned, the use of scoring to better take into account the unique challenges that exist often on reservations or on tribal land, but that do not prevent tribes from determining for themselves what their need, what their communities need and helping better use the resources that they already have through Nahasda and other programs. American Indian tribes are a huge, huge economic driver and that we need to acknowledge that force with an adequate amount of housing so that we can continue to grow economies both on and off reservations. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. And Alexandria, what are you seeing? Well, I can kind of speak to the on the ground perspective. You know, my team at Travoy, we get the pleasure of speaking with tribal leaders across the country every day about their goals and their great projects that they have in mind and, you know, their vision for the future. And so I'm excited about the projects that we learn about and that are in formation right now for 2022 and 2023. I really feel that. Each year, the level of quality and expertise and leadership in housing by our tribal partners continues to raise the bar for LIHTC development, both on and off tribal land. So I'm really excited about the future. We've got lots of really great projects in the works, and I'm optimistic that we can continue working with our investor partners and state housing agencies to make them a reality. And John? Demand on the investor side is is strong for for these projects. I mean, I, I think it exceeds 
the number of tribal housing projects that can realistically be built based on just limitations on the tax credit program and how many allocations are likely to be awarded to tribal housing projects, which is great. I mean, there's just not enough of these projects for us to invest in at the time being. There's always things that can affect demand and pricing, like changes in tax rate, changes in the tax codes, and investors entering and exiting the market. Um, so we keep our eye on that and we we try to be proactive in communicating those changes. But we're, we're very excited and optimistic about, about uh, what's happening in 2022. Thank you all so much. I mean, this is such an important topic and such an important need, uh, such an important gap to close. So uh, thanks for, for talking us through a lot of this today and, and for your work doing all of this. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.